Amen. Well, there was a shipwreck and there was only one survivor and he managed to swim to shore. Uh, no safety, no, no rescue boats in sight. Uh, for several days, he feverishly prayed to God that he would be rescued and he waited and he waited and finally he decided that he wasn't going to get rescued. So he scrounged together what he could off the beach that had floated ashore from his wrecked ship and uh, he built himself a little shelter and uh, he was exhausted. He managed to... to light a fire out of, out of some driftwood and store the few possessions that he had in this little makeshift hut that he, he had built. And then one day when he was out scavenging this island for food, he comes back and he, he finds that his fire had gotten into his shelter and it burned his shelter to, gr to the ground and all of the stuff that he had left. And he he wept, he, he cried out in grief and anger, and, and he said, God, how could you do this to me? Why me? Why this? Why? Why? And he eventually drifted off to sleep. And early the next morning, he was awakened by the horn of a ship, and he could not believe his eyes that this ship had come to rescue him. And he said, how did you know that I was here? And they said, we saw your smoke signal. You know, Jesus' final days on this earth were very confusing for his followers. They did not understand what was going on. They didn't understand what was happening. There were things happening that were not right. Their, their Messiah, their Savior was dead. He was buried. And, and though he had prepared them for this and, and had told them many things all along, we know that when we're in the midst of a really difficult time, we have a hard, difficult time seeing clearly. And sometimes things happen to us and we don't really understand why. To us, in our head, there's just no logical reason why this should be happening to me other than God hates me. You know, we can draw that very conclusion, but in the end, oh, in the end of those seven calendar days where Jesus came into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, which we're going to talk about today and all of the rest of the week uh, that we are celebrating, it, it was, uh, you know, think about this. Uh, you, we've all been to sporting events or we've watched them on TV, whether it be the Super Bowl or the Olympics or a simple, you know, Lingle Fort Laramie Dogger high school basketball game. There is some sort of fanfare at the beginning of the game. You know, um, simply here, you know, in the Dogger Dome, we, uh, uh, Mr. Lashley announces the starting five or six or seven, if it's volleyball or whatever. We, 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 we dim the lights, students get their cell phones out and turn their flashlights on and we play the song Serious, the song that the Chicago Bulls are introduced to. It's pretty, seriously, for high school, it's pretty cool. You go to a college game, whether it be a football game in, in Memorial Stadium in Lincoln or, or a, a UW basketball game, they've got smoke or fire coming out the top of the, the basketball hoops when they announce the team. There is this great fanfare or the Super Bowl. I mean, this year it was like, wow, we're, uh, I mean, who is this guy? Why is The Rock speaking? 
Why is he saying what he is saying? It's all about the hype and the fanfare, right? For these two teams that are going to battle in the trenches for the next couple of hours. Well, that is a lot like what I think was happening on that Palm Sunday. You see, Jesus entered Jerusalem and there was going to be a battle. Um, Jesus was entering into Jerusalem with his team for his sort of final stand. But a final stand that would be anything but fair. There were no referees. There were really no rules. There would be lying. There would be cheating. There would be bribery. And at the end, there would be death. A horrible, awful, painful crucifixion of an innocent man. Now, if you would turn to the book of Matthew, it's the first book of the Gospels in the New Testament. So about two-thirds of the way through your Bible, um, if, there's, if, there's, if there is uh, names at the top that you don't recognize, keep going, <laughs> and you'll get to a name that you recognize, and then uh, find the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 21. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 11 this morning as we look at Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Now, in your notes at the top there, I've listed uh, each gospel and where this account is found in each gospel. Each gospel talks about Jesus entering Jerusalem. It was a very important event. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds then, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, in our passage this morning, I want to look at four ways in which Jesus enters Jerusalem that Sunday before his crucifixion. The first thing I want to do, though, is is ask you, what title does your Bible translation give to this passage? What what is the title? And you're going to have to yell it because I'm kind of hard of hearing. The triumphant entry. Does anybody have anything different than that? What's that? Wow. Somebody else. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Is that, is that what was said back here? Oh, as king. Okay, good. Anything else? Now, I want to point out 
that these titles in your Bible are, they're not inspired. Those were added for us to sort of get a general sense of what that thing is. But the ones that say the triumphant entry, what, I don't, I don't see it. Yes, there were some people shouting and there was, there was some, a little bit of fanfare, but, but triumphantly, did Jesus really enter Jerusalem triumphantly? Um, I say no, not triumphantly. Kingly, yes. Royally, yes, and we'll see that in a little bit. But triumphantly, I don't see it. And, and here is why. First of all, Jesus entered humbly. Jesus entered Jerusalem humbly. The scene in Jerusalem that day was unbelievable, something that we've never, ever experienced before, I would say. Passover was an enormous celebration. Lots of people came to town for Passover. The historian Josephus wrote that between two to three million people came to Jerusalem during Passover. Uh, E.P. Sanders, in his book, Judaism, Practice and Belief, using various means of estimating the actual number of attendees. His, the numbers he came to were 300, between 300 and 500,000 people coming into Jerusalem for uh, the Passover. And, and what occurred during that week is people sacrificed a lamb, and usually in private groups consisting of around 10 people. So if, if we do the simple math and we use the smallest of estimations... That comes to somewhere between 30 and 50,000 lambs were slaughtered during the week of Passover. Now, imagine the magnitude. Um, imagine the blood flowing out of the temple at this time. All of which foreshadowed and pointed to, to Christ. Uh, this is a large national festival, a large national gathering of people. And any time that you have that many people traveling into a city for a celebration, that's a big event. That's an enormous event. But as far as Jesus entering triumphantly, he wasn't technically included in that event, though he was. He didn't enter triumphantly, nothing along the lines of triumphal fanfare is mentioned in the text, no organized parade, no lights, no power, no show of power, no white stallion and legions of soldiers, no trophies of war, no captives paraded through town. Yeah, some shouting and spreading of branches and coats, uh, which is why it's referred to as Palm Sunday. Now, each gospel writer includes different details of that day. If, if we were to read every account, we're not going to, but I'm going to tell you why they're different. Um, each gospel writer is writing to a different group of people about Jesus. Um, Jesus is God, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died for our sins, rose from the dead. Is the one true God who conquers uh, our enemies of sin and death and is coming again one day to judge the world and to draw us all, those who have died before and those who are alive at the time, to himself, who are in Christ Jesus. Same historical events. But Jesus' ministry was filled with so much that they can only 
write and synthesize particular things. And so they each included different snapshots of what happened that week. And so Matthew, who who we are reading today, was, was writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. Mostly Jews would be reading his gospel from the very beginning. Then they wanted to know if all of this that's occurring right now is spoken about in the Old Testament. How are uh, the, the promises of God and the prophets being fulfilled today in Jesus Christ? Matthew is writing all about that. That's why Matthew traces Jesus' lineage back to Abraham and David, two very important figures in Jewish history. Mark writes his gospel to a predominantly Roman audience. Romans don't really care about your national ancestry. They were very much a multiracial nation, much like our own. They don't care, didn't care what your family history was. All they cared was, did you get it done? Did you get it done? Did you do what needed to be done? So there is not a genealogy in Mark. Mark is a relatively short gospel compared to the others. It's filled with active present tense verbs like Jesus did this and Jesus went there and and this happened and that happened. If you read through the book of Mark, it happens very quickly and it's just one thing after the other. And, And the point is, Jesus got the job done. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. It's finished. And then if we were to look at the Gospel of Luke, was written to Gentiles, people who weren't necessarily Jewish in background, so they're not as interested with the pedigree of, of Jesus and his heritage, but they are interested. So Luke, the beloved physician, takes Jesus' genealogy, his family history, back to Adam to make the point that Jesus was human. He was a man. He is God, but he was also a perfect man. And then John primarily wrote to a Greek audience. Now, all of this inspired by the Holy Spirit, inerrant in the original language, John, again, spoke to, the, to a Greek audience, uh, audience, which is steeped in philosophy. And he is making it very, this very clear argument to the Greeks that Jesus is the one true God. Read the first chapter in the, in the Gospel of John, and it's, it's unlike the other ones. And it is somewhat philosophical as you think about it. Jesus always was and always will be the one true God, and eternal life is to be found solely by faith in him, John says. So just as Jesus entered Jerusalem humbly, the authors of the gospel, we see them humbly writing to the various groups of people. We too can enter humbly into the lives of our neighbors and our family and our friends, and we can share what Jesus did in our life, our story, with them in a very humble and loving way, just as the gospel writers have done with us. And just as Jesus entered Jerusalem himself, very humbly. I mean, that just kind of goes against what we'd really rather have, right? I mean, you can imagine the people and where they were at and why they were thinking the way that they were. Because, I mean, I want my God to be all-powerful and almighty, and I want him just to wipe out everybody and, 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 you know, be the hero, which Jesus was, but not in the way that we think of heroes. Not in the way that that I really want... um, 
Do you ever name drop? You ever just, you know, you know somebody and you're talking to somebody and you think that that person you're talking to would be impressed by you knowing or having done something with somebody else? You ever do that? Sometimes I want to name drop Jesus and to be able to say, just, wow. Now, we can. I'm, I'm not diminishing what Jesus did or anything like that, but he's just different than what I think sometimes we'd like to drop a name with. I mean, he, it was great fanfare. He marched into Jerusalem triumphantly, people bowing down before him because they didn't have a choice. That's kind of the story that I'd really like to tell, but that's not the story that Jesus lived. No, he went into Jerusalem humbly that day. Uh, the gospel writers record that by divine foreknowledge, the disciples found a colt in Bethphage, uh, uh, a donkey and her colt. Uh, Matthew, as I just read, ties the account closely to Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 9, verse 9. That's where that first appears. It's, and it's likely that Christ, that Jesus probably rode the donkey for the more difficult part of the journey, maybe transferring to the colt, because Matthew says he rode both of them, probably not at the same time, right? That would be kind of awkward. Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Hundreds of years before it happened, that was written. And, oh, well, so then Jesus just made that up, right? He sent the disciples to steal a donkey and a, and a foal, and the owner was going to be okay with it because there was no divine intervention. Uh-uh. This is happening because God wants it to. And isn't that how Jesus often enters our lives, righteously having salvation and gently? He doesn't force his way in. There's no huge fanfare. He comes gently. He comes humbly as a servant, just as he did that night. He washed the disciples' feet before the Last Supper. He loves each one of us. He washed the feet of the man who was going to betray him with a kiss. He came to put his life in the place of ours, not with great fanfare, not with a show of force and power, but a show of servanthood. Jesus came for you and he came for me. He came to seek and save the lost, not to seek prominence or take a position of power. He didn't even come to free the Jews from the oppression of the Romans. That's not why he was there. He came to be their savior. He came to be our savior and he came humbly. No, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on that day was not a triumphal one. It was one of humility, and, and it was royal. Jesus entered Jerusalem messianically. Now, Jesus didn't want to be there. Jesus didn't want there to be any mistake about it. Strike that last statement. He was claiming to be a king. He was claiming to be the Messiah. He did it multiple times over and over and over again. It's recorded in the Gospels. By the end of the first century, 
the glory of Israel was completely gone. Completely gone. God had been silent for hundreds of years. They were tired. They were oppressed. And they knew, though, that someday the Messiah would come on the scene. Uh, It was foretold, the root of Jesse, the son of David. The hope of Israel was that someday a king would return. So the Israelites are are just continuing to try and put one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. The Messiah is going to come. The Messiah is going to come. They would would teach their children um, about the coming Messiah, the Passover, the, um, the Sabbath, all of those things, all of their celebrations were in order for them to remember and, and to look forward to what God was going to do. Many prophecies said that when the son of David returns, things will all be set right. And over time, over those hundreds of years, that view, which was probably originally spiritual in nature, turned to military in nature. Over time, their, their need to be freed from their oppressors overcame their sense that they needed spiritual healing. And it was a physical national king that they were waiting for and hoping for. Uh, it's a very moving thing in the New Testament to see how that phrase Son of David is used. I know we've talked about it before, but I want to remind us. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. See, they called out with great hope. They called out with great faith. They called out to Jesus as Messiah, son of David. Our hope is in the Messiah Verse 28 of Matthew 9, when he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Heal your blindness. Yes, Lord, they replied. Yes, Lord. We see that title used again in Matthew chapter 15, verse 22. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. Jewish lineage is important to people. It was important that Jesus was the son of David. Verse 48, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. I'm sure they didn't do that nicely. But he shouted all the more because they were being loud. Son of David, have mercy on me. He wasn't crying out to anybody or anything else but Jesus. He knew Jesus was special. He knew Jesus could help him. He cried out in hope, Jesus, son of David, the Messiah, the savior of the world. It goes on in Mark chapter 10, verse 49. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man. Cheer up, Jesus says, on your feet. He's calling you. Actually, the people called that. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. 
What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, are you kidding? Did you not hear what I was saying? No, that's not what he said. He said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. You see, we have great hope when we give everything, our life, our things, our children, our friends, our neighbors, and we surrender them to Jesus. So when you get discouraged and you want to give up, it's been a long day, you're tired, I would suggest you cry out to Jesus. When you're in physical pain, And you can't stop it, or you can't seem to fix it, or the the doctors can't seem to fix it. Cry out to Jesus. When we're afraid or anxious, we need to cry out to Jesus. When we are in awe of what we see around us, cry out to Jesus. Good, bad, indifferent. Our first response, cry out to Jesus. Jesus' royal entry is of vital significance in understanding the messianic mission of Jesus. Up until now, Jesus has been very careful not to allow anybody to utter his name. To, 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 you know, he, he kept the demons quiet. He kept people quiet. They, they stayed away from Jerusalem. Why? Well, I, I, it wasn't time yet for this conflict with the Jewish religious leaders because there was going to be one. The opponents of Jesus understood the strong messianic implications of the manner of his entry into Jerusalem, and they didn't like it at all. They knew Zechariah chapter 9. They knew the prophecies. And in their minds, I think Jesus was just faking it. He was just trying to be something that he wasn't. It was blasphemy. But time and time and time again, Jesus Proved through his power and his words, his control over death and nature, that he was God. They just couldn't see it. They had blinded themselves. He came riding into Jerusalem, which was a kingly thing to do, but he didn't do it as a king would. He came in on a donkey, not a horse. Which basically meant that he came in peace. Jesus wasn't coming as a military conqueror, which is what they were hoping for. He was coming in peace. And the shouts of those who were traveling with him and likely the shouts of those who joined in as he came in further and further into town, all of them were hoping for release of this oppression from the Roman government. Prophecies would have been coming to the minds of people who watched and heard. He, he was urged by the religious leaders to quiet the people. They were afraid of what was going to happen. Well, you know, the last time us Jews kind of got out of hand, you know, the, the Romans just sort of get all oppressive and start killing people. Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, verse 40, I tell you, he says, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. It's a big deal. Jesus writing in to Jerusalem. But the people wanted someone who would run the Romans out of town and restore the nation of Israel back to its glory. But Jesus 
intentional, purposeful entry into Jerusalem declared that he wasn't going to be that kind of king. He wasn't going to be that kind of leader, but it was most definitely as a statement. So as a result of what was happening, the religious leaders demanded his crucifixion. And the multitudes who cried Hosanna on Sunday would later that week cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Have you ever found yourself responding to Jesus in the same way? Have you ever thought one day, you know, how your life should be? What should happen to you? The things that you should get, the things that God should do for you. And, and maybe one morning you're, you're moved by the Holy Spirit and you recognize how much of a Messiah and how good Jesus is for you. And two or three days later, you're in the pit and you're in the, the midst of the struggle and, and, and you begin questioning and doubting that he really cares or is real. And, and, and the enemy can just get us to spin on a dime. We get wrapped up in our selfish lives and it becomes an it's all about me attitude. I mean, we work hard. We clean the house. We take out the trash. We wash the windows. We do the laundry. All in an attempt to get the fathers failing to submit to submit to the father. Instead of moving our lives in line with him, we try to manipulate him into doing what we want and how we think things should go, which is what the Pharisees were doing, which is what the majority in Jerusalem were doing at the time. And instead of moving our line, lives in line with him, we do the opposite. But rest assured, Jesus won't be pressured into doing what we want him to do. Praise Jesus for that. He will continue to do what is best for us, just as he did on that first Palm Sunday, which brings us to the third way that Jesus entered Jerusalem, and that was as a sacrificial lamb. This part of this story always just gives me goosebumps because we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years of history here and prophecy. So on the 10th day of the first month of the year, which is five days before Passover, every family was required to choose a lamb for Passover as God had instructed Moses in Exodus chapter 12, verses 3 through 6. So if you want to read about that, go to Exodus 12, 3 through 6. Now the principal livestock in Bethlehem, which was like a bedroom community of Jerusalem, okay? Jerusalem is like Torrington and Bethlehem was like Lingle. I don't know the distances, but it kind of feels right. Okay, in, in Bethlehem, the principal livestock industry in Bethlehem was what? Sheep. It was sheep. And it brings a little more other details to Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, right? Shepherds are, there's lots of shepherds out there watching their flocks. And the flocks that they're watching, the, the flocks that they're watching are the flocks that will be taken to Jerusalem and sold to celebrate the Passover. Jesus was born in the suburb of Jerusalem 
where the sheep were raised. In fact, in the first, during the first century, Josephus writes that only sheep raised in Bethlehem by the Sadducees were to be used for Passover sacrifices. So that whole turning over the tables thing and, and Jesus is talking about them leveraging what's going on in the temple for their own pockets, it was happening in Bethlehem too. They were taking high advantage of this. And it seemed to be working for them. The Sadducees had a pretty corrupt racket going on. Now, Jewish historians also record that these lambs were brought from the fields of Bethlehem to the south, up to Jerusalem, and through the northeast gate of the city by the pool of Bethesda called the Sheep's Gate. This is the setting for Lamb Selection Sunday. (laughs) Lamb Selection Day. And it is on this day that the Lamb of God, born to the flocks of Bethlehem, who was going to be sacrificed for our sin, entered the city of Jerusalem. To me, that is just history that happened unreal. You, You can't make this stuff up. God did this, (laughs) and it should help us in recognizing the reality and the truth of these historical events, and that they are the fulfillment of prophecy. As Westerners, it is possible, I think, for us to miss this, but to a a Hebrew or Jewish audience— Um, All of this stuff is just flashing memories in their mind. Jesus is proclaimed a Messiah by the people, and in doing so, I believe they were, albeit unknowingly, selecting their lamb for sacrifice. The sacrificial lamb who would be sacrificed, crucified for the sins of people for all time. He was from the flocks of Bethlehem, as all lambs were required to be in that time. The Sunday before Easter, Palm Sunday, is the day in which Jesus was selected to be our sacrifice. He surrendered himself to that. And number four, the last point this morning, is Jesus entered compassionately. He entered compassionately. Luke records this observation in Luke Luke 19.41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept. Jesus is sitting on the donkey, and he stops, and he begins to weep. He had such compassion on them. He wanted to alleviate their suffering. Maybe his tears were because he knew that many of them wouldn't wouldn't believe. They wouldn't put their faith in him as the Messiah. We for sure know that he wept regardless of their belief in him or not. Because in the immediate future of Jerusalem, there was going to be even more suffering. There was going to be even more destruction in Jerusalem. It continues in Luke 19, verse 42. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it it is hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because 
you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. What a loving God we serve. Jesus has incredible love and compassion for you and for me. Honestly, he should have, he should have wiped us out a long time ago. Jesus wept not only on that day on the road to Jerusalem, but I, I don't know, I kind of feel like maybe he weeps every day for the lost. For our nation and, and other nations who continue to turn their backs on him. When we do our own thing, when we live life our way. And, and maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you have been living your life your way. There's no other way to explain it or describe it. Maybe as, as you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus. You've, you've never laid your life down before him and said, I, I believe, I don't fully understand all of this, but I hear you calling my name and I believe. We've, we've just seen how Jesus fulfilled prophecies. We've just seen how Jesus uh, entering into the city uh, was a very symbolic messianic journey. But, but that he wasn't just a symbol. He was the Messiah. He was the Lamb. He was the one who was crucified. He was the one who was buried. And he is the one that all who believe in him will be saved. So maybe today is that day. Maybe this week is that week where you believe or maybe you're here this morning and there's, an, there's incredible pain and agony in your life. Maybe the, the brokenness of this world that, that we live in has you feeling like you're hemmed in on every side and you just don't know which way to go. And it feels like there's, it feels like there's no way out. I want to be bold this morning and say Jesus is weeping for you too. He hurts when you do. And, and I want to encourage you to lay whatever it is, whatever is dragging you down, lay it at the feet of Jesus. Give it to him. Cry out to the son of David to heal you. Cry out to the son of David to give you strength. To the son of David to help you humbly seek counsel. Put it in the hands of Jesus, our sacrificial lamb. And as I close this morning and the worship team can go ahead and come on, on up here, I want to ask you, those of you who were here last week, last week we talked about Monday. What Jesus did on Monday when he overturned the tables in the temple. And I want to ask you, did, did you have any tables turned over in your life this week? Did, did, you, did you meditate on that? Did you ask Jesus to help you see those tables in your life that, that needed overturned? And, and in this moment right now, maybe, maybe you close your eyes, maybe you don't. I want you to thank him for showing you those tables and thank him for flipping those over if he flipped some tables over. If you surrendered something last week that you'd taken control of or that you were trying to manipulate him in a certain way or you were trying to use the power of Jesus for your own gain and, and this week Jesus showed you that and he, he flipped those tables over thank him for that maybe you struggled with how how do I surrender tables in my life how do I even know what those tables are well 
Take, continue to take the time to surrender to him and ask him to do that, just that. Show you the tables that you have put up in the, the money-changing tables and the ways in which you are maybe misusing the life and the gifts and the talents that he has given you for things that are not of him. Take the time this week to, to pray this. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I want to uh, just read something here. This was my devotional this morning and it just helped me sort of see something that I want you to see as well. You know, I'm, I'm telling you to, I'm telling you to grab onto Jesus. I'm telling you to hold on to him. And uh, this author, I'm not sure what his name is, but he, he's talking about how we are to come to Jesus and how sometimes when we come to Jesus, what we actually do is we, we, read, we, we redouble our efforts to be good or to justify ourselves before him. And what we really need to do is just grab onto him. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Our strength of resolve is not part of the formula of retaining his goodwill. When my two-year-old son, Benjamin, begins to wade into the gentle slope of the zero-entry swimming pool near our home, he instinctively grabs hold of my hand. He holds on tight as the water gradually gets deeper, but a two-year-old's grip is not very strong. Before long, it's not him holding on to me, but me holding on to him. Left to his own strength, he will certainly slip out of my hand. But I have determined that he will not fall out of my grasp. He is secure. He can't get away from me if he tried. So it is with Christ. We cling to him. Cling to him. Reach out and grab on to him. But also know that our grip is that of a two-year-old amid the stormy waves of his life. And our grasp will certainly falter at times. But Psalm 63, 8 expresses the double-sided truth. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. When you don't feel like you have the strength to hold on to Jesus, it's okay. Surrender that because he definitely has the strength to hold on to you and he loves you very much very much. The last seven days of Jesus' life on this earth, tumultuous, painful, excruciating, but he did it. He did it for all of us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being our sacrificial lamb. Thank you for serving us. Help us, God, not to take for granted what you did. Help us to begin this week and and on into the future to consistently be grateful for your sacrifice and your love for us. And Father, I know there's so many hard, hard things happening in the lives of people that are here in this room and are online. And some I know about, some I don't know about. God, I pray that you would help us to, to, to hold on to your hand, to reach out to you, to cry out to the son of David, the Messiah, the savior of the world, 
And when we, when we feel like we can't hold on anymore, that we would maybe just relax our grip and recognize that you are holding on to us. Just thank you. Thank you for that. God, we, we want to worship you now with our voices. In Jesus' name, amen.